0: Jazakum allahu Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullahi Assalamu alaikum.
1: alhamdulillah wa salatu wa ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa Welcome home everybody. It's good to see alhamdulillah everyone here. Uh, back for our Monday night session. Uh, we're gonna continue insha'Allah tonight. Uh, our conversation on uh, Surah Al-Kahf, the 18th chapter of the Quran. Uh, This chapter, as we've been mentioning each week, is one of those critical, super valuable chapters in the Qur'an. There are rewards associated with reciting this chapter, right? We talk about the Friday uh, the Friday recitation of Surah Al-Kahf is something that the Prophet explicitly told us about. And beyond the fact that there is obviously benefit in doing so from a perspective of reward there's also the impact of the reminders that are contained within the surah. They are truly timeless. And the uh, reminder that we are going to go over tonight, inshallah, we don't have too long because maghrib is uh, becoming earlier and earlier in the in the time. So we're gonna be wrapping up tonight, inshallah, after about 40, 45 minutes, inshallah. But um, I hope to get through tonight's session because tonight's session, I believe, personally, for the age group that roots most pertains to, which is the young professionals, um, I believe that this lesson in the story of Musa and Khidr is, is the most critical lesson. That, you know, out of all the lessons, they're obviously all very important, but what we take from tonight in terms of living here uh, in America as Muslims, trying to negotiate big questions of morality, faith, and trying to sort of find our way, that this story illustrates that challenge and the solution the best. And this is why when I teach, whether it's you know in the seminary upstairs, or whether it's here, whether I travel, the lessons that we talk about from this conversation that we're gonna witness tonight, inshallah, in the passage, is one that I bring up almost constantly, right? Whether it's direct or indirect. Um, but let's go ahead and, and, and start where we left off last week. So if you remember, last week the, the scene was given, the image was being drawn for us, of the fate of certain people on the Day of Judgment. And these were the people that basically lived life without thinking that the Day of Judgment was going to happen. And their actions reflected that. And so what happened was, when they passed away, as we all will, they came upon the reality of the day when their deeds will be shown to them. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says to us, that uh, this day is a day that will shock everybody but in particular, those people that thought it would never happen, right? Remember the statement of the man with the two gardens, he thought that this is never going to happen. But Allah Ta'ala, He says that, you know, the books will be presented, wa al kitab, And a person will find exactly what they did. Every single deed, every single word, every single letter and statement that they uttered will be contained in that record. And they'll be shocked at how meticulous and how detailed, how perfect that record will be. And they'll say that this record did not leave out anything. Like Allah didn't miss a single thing. It's shocking to them, okay? So from that continuation, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continues and He tells them that when these people see the fire, they will be at the height of their regret. You know, it's one thing when a person is going through the process of conviction, right? There's like, they know that they're guilty, then the evidence is shown to them, and then they're, being, they're hearing the verdict, but now they're coming face-to-face for the first time with the punishment, right? Things become real. And this is just an example. Allah Ta'ala is taking us step-by-step through this. Because why? Because He wants us to appreciate that this is actually a reality for some people. And for us, the believers, when the believers hear this, their hearts should feel, obviously, a little bit constricted, concerned, wanting to make sure that they're not from this group, doing whatever you can to not belong here. So he says that the wicked or the criminals, al mujrimun they will see the fire and they will realize that this is it, right? Everything that I've been denying, everything that I've been rejecting up until this point, it's here. And this is my eventual reality and Allah Ta'ala says there is no way for them to change their condition, to change at that moment. Which means that everything up until that moment, the Day of Judgment, change is possible. You see how even in the punishment, there's a reminder of mercy. Because Allah says, at that moment, وَلَمْ يَجِدُ عَنْهَا مصرفة. You won't find any alteration at that moment. You can't change a single thing. There's no on-off switch. But up until that moment, if a person is reading this and they feel concerned, then you have the privilege and luxury of change right now. And that's Allah's mercy. Even, Allah is so merciful. Even in His description of punishment, there's like, threads of mercy that are there for people who are paying attention, okay? That's why Allah Ta'ala says following that, that, that the Qur'an has something for everybody. Allah Ta'ala says that we have placed inside of this book, examples for every single person from humanity. Everybody can engage with the Qur'an. There's no person that can say that the Qur'an has nothing beneficial for them. We talked about this story, about my barber, right, last week, and how there are universal, timeless, you know, we, in English we say classic, like there are classic virtues that the Qur'an speaks about. Things like taking care of the downtrodden and the needy, like these are things that no one can disagree with. If a person genuinely disagrees with you, there, there there's serious, serious issues then, essentially, within that person. But then Allah says, the reason why people don't agree on this book that contains guidance for everybody is what? wa insanu that instead of being right people are more upset instead of being correct people are more obsessed with being right. Does that makes sense? You guys get the difference? They don't actually cons- they're not actually concerned. You and I a lot of times we're not concerned about being factually correct or following the truth. We want to win an argument. So Allah here is saying that if everybody can just put down their argumentative you know, metaphorical guns. I know in Texas, I have to be careful with that. If everyone could just put down their metaphorical weapons and actually ask themselves, what is the truth? Why am I here? What is my existence? That's the first point of departure to finding reality. Up until then, it's all a different, you know, it's all, everyone's going to have a different answer. What makes me happy? What are my goals in life? What am I pursuing? These are things that change from person to person. But the moment you start asking like deep questions, value questions, what is the purpose of my existence? These questions will start to bring about a pursuit of truth within people, regardless of their background or where they find themselves, okay? Now Allah Ta'ala says, because obviously He just presented it as something very simple. He says the Quran has guidance for everybody. If people just listen to it, then it would be, you know, case closed. That's it, open, shut. But then why are there so many people, both of, you know, from the community of Muslims and also from people who aren't Muslim, why are there so many people that refuse to acknowledge that this book has what they need? This book is not just an organic chemistry textbook. Sorry if I triggered you, right? All of our pre-med students here. Pre-med, but now you're working in tech, right? We all know how that went, okay, so. Why? Someone just got it. She's like, I'm not a doctor. Like, yeah, exactly, right, okay. So Allah says, <laughs> What prevents people from believing is Ja'a al Wuda. What stops somebody? Like, if there are people who hear the same verses that I hear and you hear, and we are inspired, right? We hear stories and we are inspired, then how is it the case? And this is a question. How many of you have ever had the question, how do we know Islam is right? Like, how do I know? There's so many religions out there. How can I be certain? You know what I love about the Quran? The Quran doesn't run away from these questions, you know what I mean? When someone asks a tough question and then, to me, and then I say, oh you know, the Quran talks about that. They're genuinely shocked. They're like, no way. I'm like, yeah. Because why? When a tough question is asked of us, we try to avoid it. We feel, we feel scared, We're like, oh no, they got me, cornered, I can't answer this. They found my one weakness. No, the Quran answers it. The Quran tells us directly, yes, there are many different belief systems out there, ideologies out there. We believe, as Muslims, that all, potentially, all religious traditions ultimately stemmed from Allah and then just deviated. So for us, the question is not a very difficult one. But he says, well, why then are some people unable to recognize the guidance in this while others can Why? He says, because these people, the ones who, when guidance comes to them, they don't seek forgiveness from Allah. Why do they have this issue? He says, because they refuse to acknowledge that this book is for them. They refuse to acknowledge that it has guidance for them. Does a person who, think, does a person who thinks they are a great chef ever need a cookbook? Yes or no? no? Have you ever seen a group of young men trying to build IKEA furniture? <laughs> you know, they give you an instruction guide, right? No, it reminds me of Musa, you know? Like, gotta keep bringing them up, right? Him building Legos. Legos, they send you an instruction guide, but he just looks at the box. And much all, he's actually pretty good at it. He's able to just look at it and, you know, deduce, use logical deduction to, like, build the thing that he's looking at. But the point being is that following instructions, if a person thinks they already know, it seems redundant. Okay? So, if the Quran is a book that says, hey, this is a book of guidance, it's a book of instructions on how to live life and achieve everlasting felicity in the next life, a person who thinks they have everything figured out is going to see that as being redundant or pointless or useless. And that's why when we have different priorities and goals in life, then the Qur'an is no longer valuable. How, how is the Qur'an gonna change my life if my life is only about achieving worldly success? If I wanna get more money or status or whatever, then how is the Qur'an gonna engage with me? But if I align my goal, that my goal is ultimately to become a better person, closer to God, doing the right thing, being able to make the right choice in a tough situation. This is why the prophet was so profound. What did he say? He said the strong person is not the one who could wrestle the other person to the ground. If many of us would like we describe like what's a what's a strong person? You know, people would start pulling up like TikTok, you know, like influencers, bar, you know, uh, uh, people who would, like go like bodybuilding and all that. That's not strength. The prophet said, "No, strength is not about somebody who can wrestle somebody else to the ground. Strength is somebody that can be insulted. Who knows? What is a strong person? Mad. The person who can control. Not that they're not getting mad, because that's not human. He said that in a time of anger, they can control themselves. Right? The Prophet also never prescribed angelic features to us. He allowed us to get, to get angry, be upset, to cry. But he told us that these emotions have appropriate responses. Every human action has a spiritual response. We can be sad, but we don't curse God. We can be angry, but we what? Hold it together. We can be scared, but we have trust. Right? We're allowed to experience the human side, but we have a spiritual response. Okay? So when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam tells us these things, he's completely shifting our paradigm. Completely. Society respects the wealthy, right? Those people who have a lot. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says, well, wealth actually is not a primary indicator of whether somebody's noble. It's not. A person's nobility is proven through different things. Not their bank account, not the car they drive, none of that. But we still find ourselves drooling over the things that are shiny in this dunya. We still find ourselves doing that. TV shows that just hype up and illustrate and make us feel so far away from gratitude because our priorities are offset. May Allah Ta'ala help us. So these examples, if a person thinks they don't need the Qur'an, guess what? The book might as well be completely empty. The pages, nothing written on them. Okay? The first step for a person to benefit from the Qur'an is what? Admitting they need help. You have to admit you need help. Right? In America, if a person doesn't admit that they need help, then institutionally, they cannot be made to do certain things. You cannot take someone to a hospital if they don't check themselves in. You can't have someone seek mental health treatment if they don't. Uh, if they don't prove themselves to be a harm to themselves or others if they don't check themselves in, right? A person, you can't force someone to go achieve higher education if they don't do it themselves, right? You have to admit that you need certain things in order for you to be able to benefit from those things. So Allah Ta'ala says, nothing prevents people from believing when guidance comes to them and from seeking their Lord's forgiveness except that these people have no problem meeting the same fate as the earlier people that we tell the stories of. So every story that we read in the Quran about these like villains and these tyrants and these people that made mistakes. There's no benefit to us sit here and say, you know what? These people were so misguided. They were so this, so that. Without asking ourselves the very difficult question of what? Huh? Are we? we? Very good. Am I the man with the two gardens? Am I the people who ran to the cave? Or am I the people partying in the city? Which one do I belong to? Right? And the next story is even more personal, the one with Musa al-Khidr, because Musa A.S. is a prophet, so we have no doubt about his character, his belief, right? But he still has in his mission some things to learn, and Allah Ta'ala shows us this, and it's really remarkable, subhanAllah. Allah continues, ayah number 56, We do not send the messengers, except for deliverers of good news and warners. By the way, in the Qur'an, when Allah describes the job of prophets, I love this. It is almost always in this sequence that Allah Ta'ala says, wa Number one, they're supposed to give good news. Number two is that they're supposed to warn. Many of us, our experience learning about Islam was the opposite. Yes? It was like, learn about hell? By the way, heaven exists too. When the, the, the Qur'an tells us that the right psychological approach is to teach about heaven... And then when a person persists in actions and behavior and statements that are counter to heaven, then you have to say, look, there is a consequence. There is a reality, right? What happens to, for example, a student in class? Um, My son again, right? I always ask him about school and it's really funny because he went from being in pre-K, which is not really school, I apologize if you think it is, (laughs) to kindergarten. Which is like, they actually have standardized testing now, which is crazy, right? So it's nuts. As a teacher, I'm like, what? what are you going to test them on? Um, they're testing them on iPads, too. That's how they administer the tests, on iPads. My kid is definitely going to just swipe off and go to YouTube. Uh, you know, I hope they have locks on those things. So, when I ask him about certain teachers at his school, I always listen to the first description he gives, right? Because they can have a long list. But I always listen to the first. Why? Because the first is typically going to be the one that's the most visceral. Like it's the one that he thinks of immediately. So if I told you like, what do you think about this teacher? He always says for this teacher, (laughs) and he needs it. He goes, she's so strict. He goes, I go, do you like her? He goes, yeah, kind of. She's very strict, right? And I go, what do you mean by that? He goes, she just, she's very strict. When I do something wrong, she says my name and she's strict. That's That's literally how he knows her. Now, he loves her, right, as a teacher. But at the same time, like, that's, that's how he knows her forever. And many of you probably have similar examples. You think of certain teachers and you remember them by an adjective that's maybe a little bit less cold than strict. Maybe you have a teacher that was very loving and funny and humorous. and what, Maybe you did have a teacher that was strict, right? And it's really, shout out Quran teachers everywhere. And, but, and it's really difficult. No, it's really, really difficult to reframe that. So think about, I want you to think about, How a student in a school experiences this subconscious anxiety every time they walk in into the class where the teacher's stripped, right? And how, and many of us, and this is kind of like, you know, a little bit of a taboo topic, but that's okay. People have maybe a certain parent or maybe both parents that when they were coming home from work, all the fun in the house had to stop, right? So you're watching TV after school or you're hanging out and all of a sudden, you hear the garage door open, the car's pulling in, and it's like, quick, shut everything down. Put away the snacks. Right? Get your books out. Act like you were studying. Why? Because there's like a fear. There's like a cloud of fear that's being ushered in with this person's presence. Okay? You guys agree? Does that exist? Have you felt that before? Am I not, I'm speaking the same language? Okay, good. Yes or no? Yes, okay. Imagine... And many of us, unfortunately, don't have to imagine, if religion had this same experience. Isn't that such a tragedy? That when a person thinks of Islam, they think of nervousness, anxiety, punishment, fear. First, no one's denying that these things exist. They have to. They have to. Otherwise, society is going to be chaotic. People will do whatever they want. No consequences. People do whatever they want. But this should not be the first thing that is brought into the consciousness of a person. So, Allah, Subhanahu wa Ta'ala, in instructing the messengers, tells us, We never sent a messenger except their first job was to give good news. Hey guys, guess what? I'm a messenger of God, and I'm here to tell you that if you live your life according to ABC, believing in Him, doing this, doing that, staying away from this, that you will have everlasting rest and relaxation and pleasure in paradise the likes of which you have never seen, right? What a motivator. And positive motivation tends to last longer than fear, right? Hope is harder to stoke. It's like a wood fire oven. Hope is harder to get going, but it tends to last longer and carry on missions further than fear. Fear is like a quick gas grill, right? You can ignite it, but the heat only gets to so high. And then if a person denies allowing the hope to be their inspiration, then Allah tells, You have to be a person that keeps it real. Otherwise, what? Otherwise, it's going to be chaotic. Okay? So he says, But the disbelievers, when they reject, they argue in falsehood, hoping to discredit the truth. Not, and notice, by the way, discredit the truth. Allah doesn't say to like, find the real answer. No. They know that it's the truth, but they don't want to abide by it. Because we don't like, as human beings, we don't like being told what to do. That's the hardest part. Right? And some people, naturally, part of our fitrah, is you tell me, I will do the opposite. I was having a conversation with a colleague, and I said, hey, I think this is a project we should do. He said, absolutely not. so so offended. I said, we should do this project. He goes, absolutely not. He goes, I'm going to fight it. Right? We love each other, by the way. Okay? I don't know if you can tell. He goes, I'm gonna fight it, I'm gonna, we shouldn't do this. I said, no, 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 I'm telling you, we need to do this. This project has to happen. No, 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 we need to fight it. And then I said, why do you think that? He goes, well, we, we could do it, but he goes, it's, it's just so difficult. How are, we gonna, how are we gonna pull it off? And I said, you know what? I think you can pull it off. You're right, it's hard, but I think you can. He goes, you're right, I'll lead it. <laughs> right? Little mental jujitsu, right? He was like, just to show you how hard it is, I'm going to do it. And I was like, oh, no, right? Like, don't do it, please. You're, you're right. We should step away. And he's like, no, now you've got my fire going. I'm going to do it. This is it. It's exactly right, right? Some people are simply inspired. You know, they say people love the chase. So some people are simply inspired by the prospect of winning an argument, right? Sometimes two people that are arguing even switch positions mid-argument. But they keep fighting now, right? Because it's not about establishing truth, it's about winning. So he says, if a person is having trouble connecting with God, the first question that everyone has to ask is, do I really want God or do I want myself? Do I want to win or do I want to submit? Because winning and submitting are like two different experiences, right? Submission is truly winning. It's a true victory over yourself. But winning the argument, right? As they say by hell or high water, like by any means necessary, that's not victory. You played yourself as Awkham (laughs) Akhara Khaled, right? DJ Khaled, right? Okay? Awkham means or as it was said by. So, he says that. they They try to discredit the truth and as a result, this is the next step. They make a mockery. They start to mock and make fun of and jest. Is there any topic in the world now that's universally fair game more than religion? Yes or no? Like as far as I can remember, being a kid even. And it was interesting because, again, as a kid, you don't realize the long-standing implications of these things, but I remember The Simpsons, like who was the weird neighbor, right, that was so strange, and the highlight of his awkwardness was his religion. It was Ned Flanders, right? I mean, every every character that I can remember, and my mom used to be really uncomfortable. Uh, she used to be uncomfortable that I was watching The Simpsons anyways. But she would just make comments like, why are are they doing this, why are they making fun of that, or that character, or this and that. And I remember being like, what's the big deal? And now that I'm a parent, and I have kids, and they're watching stuff and videos and whatnot, I'm like, why are they making the religious kid look dumb? You know? And I realized subhanAllah that there is a certain culture, right, that we, Western American individuals, born and raised or whatever, moved here, we're part of the soil, we gotta admit it, right? You know, when you're part of the earth, you know, the earth grows different things better in certain places. Yes, you guys agree? So in California, different vegetation, fruits grow basically everything. In Texas, scorpions and snakes grow, right? No, I think bell peppers and stuff grow here. Uh, Lots of salsa, onions and bell peppers, right? And tomatoes. And then different parts of the country, you can go to, you know, Florida, you have like oranges and like, you know, Republicans grow, right? (laughs) So this is what you have in different parts of the country, right? So spiritually, we have to acknowledge that like where where you were brought up, where you were raised, whether it's conscious or subconscious, you're going to kind of carry some of those traits, right? So what is the natural trait of like a postmodern American citizen when it comes to spirituality and faith? if they're not gung-ho religious, is skepticism. Like, we're naturally very skeptical, right? We're like a skeptical group of people. Americans tend to be more skeptical than others, okay? We tend to see the eastern side of the world, from here, as being a little bit more simple. Oh wow, they still do that? That's very traditional, interesting. Don't they realize how inefficient that is? Blah, 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 right? And now we have documentaries about different ways that the world purifies water, and we're like, how strange. They use that, that's, and like, why don't they just use machines? We tend to think that we are better, yeah, exactly. Like that's, that's part of the American experience, right? American exceptionalism, they call it. We tend to think that we are exceptional, that we're better, okay? What happens when a person is raised in that soil and they breathe that oxygen as part of their nafs, is that naturally anything that comes to them, their first response to it is prove it. Prove it. There's no sense of like, okay, you know what? Let me sit back and see how this goes. Let me wait, let me, let, me, let me hold judgment. Let me figure things out. The first thing is, I have to make a choice, yes or no. I'm either all in, or no, this is foolish, prove it. Okay? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that as a result of that, again, as a, as a way of sort of demonstrating our displeasure, what do we do? We make fun of things. We mock things to show that we don't think that this is actually the way. and Allah Ta'ala says that this is one of the lowest of the lows. So as a Muslim, we should not feel comfortable witnessing the mockery of religion or faith in general. We should not. In fact, guess what? In the Qur'an, Allah even tells us don't mock other people's religions. It's a command to Muslims. Just because you believe in the truth doesn't mean that you can go and point at other people's religions and say things that are Hurtful and condescending and demeaning. Why? Because the Prophet, or because Allah says, they will turn around and they will start mocking your religion and they will start cursing your God. And now you've unleashed just this absolute disrespect towards all belief in anything that is beyond the material world. So, as believers, we have a sense of respect, reverence towards belief in general. Obviously, we believe that Islam is accurate, the accurate religion, the correct religion, but we have respect for all faith systems. We don't allow people to poke fun at others, because as they say, one day you're with them, the next day you are the one being made fun of, okay? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and who is the most wrong? Who is the one who is more oppressive, more incorrect than the one who, when reminded of their Lord's verses and revelations, turn away from them, forgetting what their own hands have done? He says, as a result of this, Inna He says that we have placed, as a result of their actions turning away, they have now been, their hearts have been covered with a veil. What's the effect of when you veil something? If I were to turn off the light in this room, what happens, everybody? You can't see, right? Everything that you could perceive is no longer there anymore. You can't tell where things are. You don't know who the person was next to you, right? You saw them briefly and now you don't know. Being covered in something, being covered in darkness, takes away your ability to recognize things. So Allah Ta'ala says, when a person turns away, when they make that choice, they hear the verses of God, the reminders of Allah, they turn away, their heart is covered. And He says, leaving them unable to comprehend the Qur'an. That they're no longer able to comprehend the Qur'an. That the message is recited to them, they're like, what is this? It's a bunch of gibberish, it doesn't make sense to me. Okay, And in their ears, they can't even bother to hear it. And Allah subhanahu ta'ala says, O Prophet, even if you continue to call upon them, if they have made their choice, they will never be rightly guided. This is a very, very scary, but deeply profound impact of turning away. This is why we always say, especially here, but also I know Sheikh, Mikhail, Sheikh you know, everyone says, if you can't do something correct, there is honor in still acknowledging that it is the right way. When you turn away from something and dismiss it, then now you are, psychologically you're dismissing it altogether. You're saying this isn't actually correct. But if you say, no, this is correct. I believe that this is right. I'm just not there. There's still a level of hope. There's still a level of connection and respect that's being given there. Then Allah Ta'ala says, and your Lord is all forgiving and full of mercy. If he were to seize people immediately for the sins that they committed, then he would have hastened their punishment immediately but he saved for them an appointed time from which they will find no refuge. Meaning what? Allah's mercy is so great that the likes of Umar bin Khattab the one who's torturing and killing Muslims, the likes of Abu Sufyan who fought in battles against the Prophet the likes of Akrima, the son of Abu Jahl, the likes of Hind who assassinated the uncle or, or paid for it, the likes of Wakshi, who was the assassin himself, so many stories of companions that were standing on the opposite side of the battlefield. Now Allah's mercy is so great that He allows them to exist. Many of us are like, why does Allah allow people who deny Him to exist? Well, it's part of their reality, they get a chance, everyone gets a chance. And these people that we now say, may Allah be pleased with them, all of them at one point on their minds wanted to kill the Prophet every single one of them, right? Some of them were a little bit more, you know, committed to that than others, but all of them wanted to. And at the end of his life, Aisha, all of them, Khalid ibn Walid, Amr ibn As, etc, etc, all of them came to him and took his hand and said, I accept you as the Messenger of Allah. Imagine if the Prophet had said, these people denied me at the first go, off with their heads. That's not the kind of person he was. So if Allah is forgiving enough to be this way with people, then who are we to shut people out so quickly? Who are we to make judgments? Who are we to, miss, who are we to say that people... I'm not trying to go off on cancel culture or not. Right? A lot of people are like, is he going to do it? Right? No. Okay. But what I am saying is, forget all this new age symbolism and weird stuff and whatnot. What I'm saying is, as a, our religion teaches us, that if Allah can forgive, then we can forgive. It's part of our deen. Okay? Allah Ta'ala, He says, and these are how we destroyed the societies that persisted in wrong. We had set for them a time for destruction. Now, I want to begin very briefly. We have five minutes left, insha'Allah, for for come out, inshallah So I want to begin the story of Musa. The story of Musa here is very interesting. Ayah number 60, Allah Ta'ala begins. He jumps you right into it. You guys ever seen The Dark Knight, Chris Nolan? Great movie, okay. You know the jump to the bank robbery scene? This happens a lot in the Quran. He jumps you right into the scene. So what's the scene? The scene is that Musa A.S. Is, is is sailing on a boat with his servant. Okay? So he says, with Musa Fatahu, when Musa said to his young assistant, Fatah has a connotation of being young. By the way, there's a specific meaning there. Your youth is meant to be spent in khidma, in service. Right? Youth is a time where you learn through like apprenticeship. Okay, a lot of times we tend to think that youth is where we are designated as leaders. But young people, by definition, don't have the wisdom, because we don't have the experience, to be truly like a bona fide leader, right? The best we can be is like a servant leader, right? Think of the decisions you would have made at like 16. Many of you are still regretting those decisions, okay, or 18, or whatever. Think of of the decisions that you would have made then versus now. Right, Part of what is so important, a learning opportunity that can never be replicated, really, like once you lose your teenage years, once you lose your college experience, like can you ever replicate it? Don't you guys look back sometimes and you're like, man, I wish I took better, better advantage of that opportunity. I always tell young people, man, you know my greatest regret as a, as, a, as a high school student and college student? Eating food with friends and not trusting my mom that she said what we have, we have food at home. You know how, not one, you know how many cars I could have bought if I just switched the Taco Bell budget to, like, a Toyota budget, you know? I I mean, I'm joking, I couldn't have bought that many cars, maybe, like, one door, but the point being is, the advice I give to young people, I'm like, hey, I know that your friends are going out to eat, and I know that in order to be there, you have to kind of, like, vibe with that, but I'm telling you, it may not seem cool, but bring the Tupperware, it's fine. It tastes, it tastes better anyways. I'm like, no, my God, it's going to be so weird. I'm like, trust me, you know what's not weird? Driving when all your friends are bumming rides off their parents. Right? Like, there are decisions that you make at a certain point in your life where you are proving to yourself that you're not fit to be a leader. So young, the, the, the younger part of your life, and many of us are still in that stage, look for opportunities to serve. You will learn way more than you will if you're put in a position of leadership. Right? Like that's why people do internships. That's why they make you the last semester of your college or whatever, you do a rotation, you do internships, you do some sort of, you go into an environment and your job is just to soak things up like a sponge. Because being there and being quiet and opening your ears and closing your mouth is the best way to quickly take in information on how to succeed. But many of us have been taught, again, from the soil of the country we live in, that sharing our opinions, making our thoughts known, is more important than learning. And that's simply never been true in the history of the, of the world up until today, right? There's never even been challenged. So Allah said to his servant, who was a young man, he said to him, I will never give up until I reach the junction of the two seas, even if I travel for ages. So Musa A.S. is making a promise. He's telling this young servant of his that we have a mission, we have a journey. What was this journey? Ibn Abbas, he quotes a narration explaining to us what this journey was. He said that Musa asked Allah, because Musa was known as the one who could speak to Allah, Allah. that Musa said, Oh Allah, who of your servants is the most beloved to you? And Allah responded by saying, The one who always remembers me and never forgets me. That's my most beloved. Isn't that the definition of like best friends? Like you never forget somebody. Imagine having Allah be your best friend. You know the Prophet, he obviously loved his wife Aisha, we know that, right? He loved her so much. I mean, he used to call her Aish. Right? He used to have a nickname best right? He used to have a nickname for her. You know, he, he when asked by all of his male friends, who's your favorite who's your favorite bro? Like, who's your favorite person, right? That was they don't talk like that. That was my rendition, right? <laughs> they said, Ya Rasulullah, you know, man man like who is the most beloved to all from all people to you? He said, Aisha. In front of all his friends. Now, all the guys are like, oh, what a simp, right? Like, astaghfirullah. The Prophet says, Aisha, and then check this out, right? All you haters. (laughs) Then the men were like, oh, yeah, like our wife for sure, yeah, yeah, all of our wives are our favorite, Ya Rasulullah. Right? Like learning, but they don't want to prove that they weren't. Yeah, yeah, from the men. Who is the favorite from the men? And then he says, who knows the answer? Abu Bakr, but he doesn't say Abu Bakr, he says her father, because he wants to even tie his favorite man to his favorite person, Abu Ha, her dad, right? So this is the Prophet Sallallahu this is his example, okay? So when Ibn Abbas is telling us his narration, Musa, Moses asks God, who's your favorite? Allah says, the one who remembers me the most. So why did I tell the whole story about the Prophet Sallallahu Because even at the moment of when they were the closest, going to sleep at night, laying down next to each other, Aisha used to describe that when we laid down next to each other, our feet used to touch. Right? That's how close they were. But you want to know something amazing, subhanAllah? And again, when you're younger, you don't get this. But when you get older, you're like, wow. He used to tap her on the shoulder after spending time with her, and she's kind of dozing off, and he used to say, is it okay if I go spend time with my Lord? No. That's love. He loves his wife. He's not saying, by the way, I love God more than you always. Don't forget that. (laughs) He's saying, like, I have a need that only Allah can fulfill. And this is true. You think you have friends, you think you have companions, spouses, everything, and you think you can fill your heart up with those people. I'm telling you, It's not mean, it's not hurtful, but you have to admit to yourself, don't go around to your friends saying, you can't fulfill me, right? (laughs) You have a vessel in you that can only be fulfilled by your relationship with your Creator, right? Your friends are important. Your family, very important. Your spouse, your children, your parents, everyone has their place, but no one can take the spot of Allah. So he taps his wife, Aja, on the shoulder and says, is it okay if I go spend time with my Lord now? Can I go pray? And she says, of course. He would stand up and he would pray. And every time he would go into seduce, he would move her feet. And he would he would put his head down. And when he went up, he would move her feet back as she was sleeping. She would pretend to be asleep as she was awake. Right? May Allah be pleased with her. Okay? So he says, who is the most beloved to you? He said, the servant that never forgets me. Okay? May Allah make us amongst them. And he says, which of your servants is the most just? And Allah responded, the one who judges always by the truth and doesn't let their desires trick them. So you always stay, you always do the right thing. It's, it's not about who you know. You don't pick on the side, you don't, you don't go on the side of the person that you like more. You don't try to you know, find loopholes to facilitate you or yourself. Or other, no, you always follow what you know to be true, regardless if your desire is with you or against you. Then Musa Aisanaf asks a question. He says, which of your servants is the most knowledgeable? Which of your servants is the most what? Knowledgeable. knowledgeable. Allah Ta'ala said, the one who learns knowledge, even though they already have knowledge. The one who learns, even, and adding it to what they already have. They already have it, so they add more. Then Allah says, perhaps, as a result of that, they will receive some new words, meaning new pieces of information, new knowledge, that will ward destruction off from them, will save them. Right? Musa A.S. says, oh Allah, this is where he was, he was intrigued. Right? Because he's obviously a prophet, so he remembers Allah. He's obviously a prophet, so he's not unjust. What is he really in search of? Knowledge. Because knowledge connects you to God. The more you know of Allah, the closer you are. When you learn about Allah as the most merciful, you can't help but feel connected to Him. When you learn that Allah is the most generous, you can't help but love Him more. So he says, Oh Allah, is there anyone on earth who is more knowledgeable than me? Like well, he's a prophet. It's a fair question. It's not arrogant. Is there anyone who is more knowledgeable than me? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says yes there is one person. Musa says, Ya Allah, where should I look for him? Where should I find him? Allah says, at an ocean where two waters meet near a large island, near a large stone. Musa says, how can I recognize him? Allah says, take with you in your basket for food, a fish. Where it leaves you, you will find him. And this is why in dream interpretation, sometimes the fish is interpreted as wisdom. So Musa a.s. took with him a fish and placed it in a basket. And then he said to his servant, when this fish leaves, tell me, inform me. And they set out. And this is where the story starts. So the Hadith and the Quran, you see how they, they fill in each other's like the context. So then he tells his servant, I will never give up. They've been sailing for ages. They keep looking for where Khalid is, they can't find it. So he says, I'm never going to give up, even if I have to travel for all of time. Even if I have to go for all of time. He says, finally they reached the point where the seas met, and then they forgot about their fish. And when they checked on it, it made its way back into the sea. It came back to life, and it made its way back into the sea. When they had passed further, so they got to the point, the fish left. What does that mean? Where's Khalid? Where? Where what? The fish left. Where the fish left. Are you with me? Yeah. Okay. Khidr is where? Allah told them where? The fish, fish leaves. leaves. Okay, listen to this. I'm going to give you one profound moment and then we're going to break from it. inshallah. So the fish leaves. They didn't notice. Allah says to us. They didn't notice that the fish left, but the fish left. They passed by Khidr, fish is gone. Okay? I'm holding back from a Bengali joke. Okay, so right? If you know, then you know. They, we have one person, we God. okay? (laughs) So, they kept going, Allah Ta'ala says, they kept moving on that path. Past where Khidr was, past where the fish left. And finally, Musa A.S. becomes tired and exhausted and he says to his his, uh, uh, servant, he says, what? He says, give us dinner, bring us dinner, give us the fish. And he says, why? He says, we are tired. We are exhausted. We need something to eat. We need to relax. So that's when the servant goes to the basket, and he looks, and he sees the fish was gone, and the servant says, Oh my gosh, I thought I heard something when we stopped by the big rock. He goes, It was the fish. The fish left us at that moment. Okay? The fish left us at that moment. So then Musa becomes excited, number sixty-four, and he says, This is exactly what we were looking for. This is what Allah told me. Allah told me to find Khidr at the place where the fish left us. So they went and they retraced their footsteps. You guys want to hear something so profound? The tafsir mentioned, this is why tafsir is important. Because you read this and you're like, okay, so far like all I want from this, I'm kind of craving salmon, right? And you're like, I'm trying to, but let me tell you something amazing. Why does Musa stop and ask for the fish? Because why? What's the reason he gives? Tired and? Hungry. He wants, to, he wants to rest, right? He's hungry. So he's pushing himself, pushing himself, pushing himself. He's ignoring the pangs of hunger until finally what? He can't, yeah, he, can't, he can't do it anymore. He's like, I'm hungry. Bring out the fish. Bring out the bread. Let's have dinner. Let's have some food. Okay? Then, when they notice the fish is gone, what happens? The prophecy kicks in. Oh, that's where we we're supposed to go. That's where we're supposed to go. So they rush back. You know what's amazing? The Quran doesn't say, oh, they found some other food and they quickly ate. They still had the bread, by the way. The bread didn't jump in the water, too. Okay? It was just a fish. Okay? The bread was there. But he didn't even feel the hunger anymore. You know what the tafsir said? Amazing. The tafsir said that your body has needs, but when you remember Allah, your soul takes care of those needs. It's so true, right? Anyone of you ever been hit with like a really big expense and it just sucks? It's something you don't even want to pay for. It's not even nice, it's not even fun. Like you have to fix your fence. Like, this isn't cool. It's not like a new car or something. It's like you have to pay to fix your fence. You're like, I don't want a fence. Probably something to have a fence. I don't need a fence, right? I have a lot, okay? I don't need a fence. You get upset. You look at the $5,000 for a new fence, you're like, this is dumb. Why am I doing this, right? Then you pay for it, you look at it, and you're like, okay, whatever. And you just get angry. Every time you look at it, you're like, dumb fence. $5,000 fence, what a dumb fence, right? But if you're at a fundraiser for orphans and you feel the pinch, and you write that $5,000, do you ever regret that moment? Do you, feel, do you feel the same anger, the same pain, the same frustration that you feel for the dumb fence? No. You go to hedge and you have like the, the, the trip of a lifetime. Tens of thousands of dollars to save up. All of your PTO gone. You have to take some PTO time off for some jury duty. You're like, what a dumb thing. Jury duty, right? $18 to come and sit. And leave right. I'm going to use the religious excuse. I can't do this because this isn't sharia, so I can't, you know, be a part of this. I'm a Muslim, like, right? you know what I mean. And you use a date, but you use your vacation to go for, like, for example, like last time I went to Ramadan, or you go to Hajj. Do you ever regret that? It's so interesting. The things that irritate your body, when your soul is satisfied, those irritations go away. You haven't eaten all day. You're so hungry. Can't wait for lunch. In Ramadan, you don't even feel it. You're like, alright, it is what it is. I'm doing this for Allah. The moment you decide to do something for Allah, and Allah is brought back into your consciousness, it seems like all the discomfort you felt went away. This is the power of remembering Allah. He was hungry, then the fish disappeared. He said, yes, that's exactly what we had to do. Let's go back. They retraced their steps. Anytime you find yourself irritable, remember Allah. Remember Allah. And you will feel the flame of anger, or frustration, or impatience, or doubt, whatever it is, you'll start to feel that flame being what? Extinguished. That's why we're told, you feel upset. You feel upset. You feel hurt. You feel concerned. Remember Allah. Remember Allah. Isn't that profound? SubhanAllah man. I was reading that and I was like, this book never ends. It's the gift that keeps on giving. We ask Allah to give us the lessons from this book. We ask Allah to allow us to be like those people who sought wisdom from those who had more than them, we ask Allah Ta'ala to make us like our Messenger Musa, salam, that our search for more knowledge is something that gives us satisfaction. We ask Allah subhanahu ta'ala, to allow us to be people that our hearts are never blocked from Qur'an, and that our hearts are never shut off from Quran, but that our hearts are always yearning for more, and that when we read the book of Allah, we are always given more nourishment than we did before we picked it up.
0: Amin Amin ya means subhanahu wa bi-hamdik. نشهد ان لا اله الا انت نستغفرك